This episode of The Vast Majority is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Bringing together films from leading independent film distributors, Ovid.tv is the streaming service for social issue, documentary, and independent films largely unavailable anywhere else. With over 500 titles available, Ovid.tv offers documentaries on all the crucial topics of today. In the spirit of September's Democratic debate, Ovid.tv has made available Chisholm 72, a documentary about Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to run for president and the first elected to Congress. The Hollywood Reporter calls it a refreshing antidote to the opportunism and cynicism that rules the political roost today and an inspiring tale of someone who made a difference. From now until October 25th, you can save 50% off the regular monthly subscription price. Just head over to www.ovid.tv. That's www.ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code Jacobin at checkout, and you'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Hello. Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. West Virginia is Trump country, or at least that's what we're supposed to think. The state went for Trump in 2016 and is seen by some media commentators as a bastion of reactionary thought in the country. But that was proven wrong, or at least not the whole story, in the 2018 West Virginia teacher strike, which kicked off a wave of teacher strikes around the country, including in many red states. And Kathy Kunkel is hoping to prove it wrong in her run for Congress in West Virginia's 2nd District. Kathy is an energy analyst in West Virginia. She has been active in a number of environmental, labor, and other campaigns in the state, and is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. She's also a Jacobin contributor who's written half a dozen articles for us about West Virginia, as well as about Puerto Rico. I talked to Kathy about how she came to West Virginia, the work she's done in the state, and why she thinks her left-wing vision can win in a quote-unquote red state. Here's Kathy. Kathy, hello. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for being here. So tell us first about your personal history, how you came to West Virginia and your uh, history, uh, what, you, what you've done with your life before uh, coming to West Virginia and now that you're in West Virginia. Yeah, so I'm a West Virginian by choice. Um, I grew up in Maryland um, outside of Baltimore, and I came to West Virginia in 2010 Actually, I came to West Virginia from California, where I had been in a PhD program in energy policy. And I was a couple years into it and realized that it was really not for me, in part because I, I just realized that academia was not where I wanted to, to spend my life. And I had this idea that to really understand the coal economy, it would be a much better idea instead of being in California to be in the actual coal economy, which is in West Virginia. Did you study um, that in graduate school, coal? Not specifically. I mean, it was I was studying like uh, electric utilities and utility policy, but I did have an interest because of my interest in climate change in fossil fuels in particular. And so you left graduate school and after that you moved to West Virginia? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I started working in Southern West Virginia um, on a project related to economic diversification and community win, which ended up not working out as a project, but I stayed around uh, in West Virginia. I got involved in working on energy efficiency issues and uh, fighting our state's electric utility monopolies um, as they were 
both of them trying to essentially get corporate bailouts uh, on the back of West Virginia ratepayers. Um, and we fought those proposals at the Public Service Commission, and we won on one of them. So I've been basically for the last nine years an energy analyst and an expert in uh, public utility cases. I've done work, obviously, in West Virginia and also uh, in different places around the country, including in Puerto Rico. Um, and I've also been sort of on the side politically active here in Charleston, West Virginia, where I live. Our uh, community was contaminated. The drinking water was contaminated by a chemical spill back in 2014. And I was very active in a community organization that formed after that, um, fighting with West Virginia American Water uh, and trying to get improvements to our water system here. Um, and then more recently with a group called Rise Up West Virginia that has worked on Medicare for All and education issues in West Virginia um, and helped elect a couple of progressive members of our state legislature last year. And so besides the awful things like uh, water contamination and various other uh, disasters, what is it that's kept you in West Virginia? I love the state. You know, I've, I've never been a real like big city person. And, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful state. The people here have been very welcoming. Um, I don't know. I just I really like the culture here and I just keep finding things to do. So I've stayed and you're an energy analyst. I have to admit, I don't really know exactly what that means. Besides, you probably know a lot more about energy than I do. So can you explain what that means to be an energy analyst and what your work looks like? Yeah, it involves um, analyzing like the economics and finances of various either individual projects or proposals by utilities. So for example, when our utilities were trying to... Uh, it was, it was sort of this shell game they were doing where they were trying to like transfer coal plants between corporate affiliates in a way that would be beneficial to the corporate parent and not beneficial to the customers essentially. Uh, but uh, analyzing the, the economics of that and writing uh, testimony on, you know, projecting, you know, the future, what, how much, how much energy is this coal plant going to generate and what do we think it's going to be worth and what impact is that going to have on the rates and that kind of thing. Right. So we'll get into the details of some of that in a minute. But uh, I guess first, the you know, when, when the average Jacobin reader or podcast listener hears West Virginia at this point, I think uh, the, probably their mind goes quickly to the teacher strike of last year. You wrote about the teacher strike for Jacobin. You wrote two different articles. Uh, and uh, you were, uh, I believe, involved in the in the strike and strike support stuff. So, can you talk about uh, that involvement as well as how the strike has changed politics in the state since then? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it was very exciting, obviously, for um, for those of us in West Virginia, and I don't I don't think any of us really uh, anticipated early on that this would go. Uh, to a major strike and obviously did not anticipate that it would spark a national strike wave. Um, so so that's just been amazing to see. But, um, you know, it really grew out of uh, frustration with the public employee health insurance plan, um, which still has not been resolved, um, even though teachers have did get a raise. But the, the underlying problem of cuts to the health insurance plan has not been resolved. Um, and, you know, it was really um, some rank and file teachers who kind of um, led the charge in terms of uh, building this Facebook group and sharing stories and creating this place where people could see that their personal struggles with their health care were not just their personal struggles, but was actually a, a pretty universally shared struggle. Um, once it became obvious that there was, in fact, going to be uh, a strike, 
I was involved a little bit locally in helping to organize some uh, churches to uh, help with uh, meals for kids during the strike. Um, but then I was also involved uh, with a strike fund uh, that was set up pretty quickly amongst uh, a group of us who saw the need for it and were asked by some teachers to do it. We thought we were going to raise maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars, and ended up raising over three hundred thirty thousand dollars, and being able to provide direct support to close to a thousand teachers and school service personnel. Did that come mostly from outside of the state, or from in, oh, yeah. in West Virginia? Yeah. Okay, so that's a yeah. real testament, obviously, to how excited people were to see this yeah. strike popping up yeah. in West Virginia. I mean, I'm pretty, we got donations from Australia. I mean, oh. it really went all over the place. And did the strike change things? I mean, do you feel today in 2019 that things are different because that strike happened in any way? Yeah, and it's worth noting, too, um, it didn't get as much press, but there was uh, a statewide strike again this year. Um, uh, excuse me, in Jacobin. If you were reading Jacobin, you would know that there was another strike. <laughs> yes, well, you didn't mention it, so I thought I would clarify. Um, anyway, so yeah, so there was another strike uh, this year and against the wishes of the vast majority of teachers and service personnel and the general public, uh, the legislature went back into session in the summer when the uh, teachers could not strike uh, and passed a bill to authorize charter schools in West Virginia. So now the fight is moving to like the county board of education level because it's the counties that are ultimately going to have to decide whether or not to allow charters in their county. So the the organizing and the issues that uh, led to these strikes have not been resolved. And so the organizing is ongoing. Um, and we also have seen uh, teachers stepping up and running for office. And I'm very excited that uh, in my congressional district, there's uh, already at least two that I can think of uh, teachers who are running for office for the first time for state legislative seats. So I think it, it really has woken up a lot of people and um, creating a lot lasting change. One of the issues that you uh, have on your website is something that's central to your campaign is about uh, Medicare for all uh, and uh, specifically about addressing the opioid crisis, which we know is very severe in West Virginia. So can you uh, talk about uh, both Medicare for all and the opioid crisis and and how they uh, how they're related, uh, especially in West Virginia? Yeah, I mean, Medicare for all, um, you know, is something I support just because I've you know, I've heard so many horror stories of people in West Virginia not being able to get access to care or not being able to afford the care um, that they need. And I think it, you know, it just makes sense if to have to have a system that is not solely based on profit and where people can actually uh, not have to jump through a million hoops to get coverage. And also where the federal government could negotiate prescription drug prices like the Veterans Affairs Administration already does. But I think that would be crucial because so many West Virginians struggle with with prescription drug prices. Um, and then in terms of the connection to the opioid epidemic, just having people being able to get the care they need um, before they get to the stage of being in the emergency room uh, just seems like a common sense thing to do. Do you sense so far in your campaign that, you know, obviously West Virginia has talked about as a red state at this point, which we will also talk about uh, in a second, but uh, do people does that does that argument for Medicare for all and uh, you know being able to deal with the specific crises that West Virginia is uh, facing right now? Do, do, does that resonate with people? Do 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 voters see how Medicare for all could uh, be used to to treat uh, the worst of the opioid crisis? 
you know, part of this campaign is getting the idea out there and having those conversations with people. And I've only been public with my campaign for a week. So it's a little, <laughs> a little early to say um, how that's resonating. But, you know, I also another argument for Medicare for all in West Virginia um, is that, um, you know, people, teachers, public employees would not have to fight every year about the public employee health plan if everyone was just simply included um, in a strong, improved Medicare for all program. So um, I think I think there are a lot of challenges that West Virginia faces that could be resolved by moving to a universal health care system. And so, yeah, those are definitely the arguments I'm going to keep making through the campaign. So you wrote in your article, Losing West Virginia, about the impact of the decline of coal and the opportunity that Republicans saw to uh, take advantage of this perceived war on coal from the Democratic Party. Uh, so that's part of the story. But you also say that the Democrats' failure to develop an economic vision that would benefit West Virginia workers is central to the story. So can you talk about what that vision is and what it would look like in West Virginia specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of the things that we're trying to advance in this campaign. I mean, it's um, it's federal investment in the state in building infrastructure and putting people to work doing that. Um, it's strengthening our education system, which in many of our rural counties, uh, the Board of Education is the largest employer in the county. So, um, you know, strengthening strengthening our schools and um, uh, giving our teachers like a, uh, a salary that is uh, doesn't, that is like on par with surrounding states, so they're not fleeing the state, uh, is really something that can, can keep people here and is a really important part of economic uh, development in some of these rural counties. Um, it's also about... Um, empowering uh, small businesses, making it easier for people to start small businesses in agriculture and tourism and um, other industries that um, you can keep some of the wealth in West Virginia instead of this extractive model that we've had uh, for so long. And, you know, you really see our state has just like very much prioritized, um, you know, large out-of-state corporations coming in instead of really trying to have a more bottom-up approach to, to developing and keeping wealth in the state. West Virginia is an interesting case study in that it is seen now as a red state. You write in your article and mentioned earlier that historically that has not been the case. But uh, according to some liberals, they likely want to sort of write the state off as being hopelessly reactionary. Uh, and if there is a chance for Democrats to win in the state, it would be by being a, a mansion type, right? By uh, being sort of centrist and very uh, uh, pro-corporate, pro-extractive uh, pro capital and all of that stuff. Uh, but you point out the uh, point that in 2016, Bernie Sanders defeated Hillary Clinton in the primary throughout the entire state of West Virginia. And so it seems like there is hunger within the state uh, and certainly there are material conditions within the state uh, that that predispose people to actually be interested in that alternative, uh, more left-wing uh, economic vision, uh, th that that is a more promising avenue than what the Democratic Party has been doing so far, which has been a total failure. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you and you saw that in the, in the uh, school employee strikes too, where uh, school employees were flooding our state capital and chanting about taxing our gas. So raising the severance tax on natural gas to fund public education. Um, and that's, you know, is something that is very contrary to, you know, what 
uh, both political parties in the state have done, which is essentially catered to the interests of out-of-state companies. Um, and you also saw this to some degree uh, last year with Richard Ojeda's campaign in Southern West Virginia for Congress. You know, he ran a very, very populist campaign, very much talking about the need to raise the severance tax, the, the fact that these companies have come in and stolen wealth from the state for over a century. Um, and he, you know, he didn't win his race, but I believe nationally, he, he of any congressional district, uh, he had the greatest change from Hillary Clinton, what percentage of the vote she got versus what percentage of the vote he got. It was the largest increase. And you have also, in addition to your work on energy policy, have written about Puerto Rico. Uh, you've written for Jacobin about Puerto Rico. You've written elsewhere about Puerto Rico. Uh, how did you well, get involved in paying attention to and writing about Puerto Rico and, and what are the issues that are at stake there? And if you were to win your race, what would you want to do in the House of Representatives about the situation in Puerto Rico? Yeah, well, I actually got into Puerto Rico because of the energy policy work, uh, got connected to an uh, environmental group in Puerto Rico that was looking for assistance in evaluating the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's long-term plan. And uh, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority is uh, heavily oil-fired. Um, and, you know, it's an island in the Caribbean. You'd think they could do some, something with renewables, but, you know, they were at about 2% renewable energy. Um, and so uh, I got involved uh, through that route and um, just especially after Hurricane Maria became uh, more and more involved. And, you know, the electrical system in Puerto Rico is sort of a, a bellwether for the whole place. I mean, the, the issues surrounding the electrical system, which is publicly owned, are very similar to issues around a lot of other government agencies in Puerto Rico. I mean, there's off island financial interests that are essentially coming in and running the place in the interest of bondholders instead of in the interest of the people of Puerto Rico. Um, there's, you know, tremendous pressure to cut uh, pensions and healthcare benefits on the workers at the power authority um, who are already fleeing the island uh, for better salaries on the mainland. There's a whole host of issues we could get, get involved in there, but um, you know, I've been doing work down there for about the last four years and you know, if I were in Congress, you know, obviously Puerto Rico does not have voting representation in Congress. Um, and, you know, there's not uh, a large Puerto Rican population in my district by any means, but I would certainly uh, be committed to to listening to the people of Puerto Rico um, and to making sure that we do actually uh, treat them fairly in terms of uh, federal disaster aid, uh, which has not at all been the case recently, obviously. So we've been talking about a bold vision that you have on all kinds of issues uh, from uh, dealing with the environment and environmental devastation in West Virginia to having a more bold left-wing platform. And you're a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and we have heard a lot in the pundit class over the last couple months or the last year or, or since Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, the various reasons why that kind of agenda will only work in, say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's deep blue district in the Bronx or Queens, or in Bernie Sanders' strangely you know, rural but liberal state of Vermont. And you are putting forward this agenda uh, in West Virginia, uh, in what people have come to think of as a very red, red state, a state that went for 
Donald Trump in 2016. So uh, how would you, you know, respond to people who would uh, say that your your agenda that you're putting forward is one that uh, that won't play in Peoria or, or in your case, won't play in uh, Charleston, won't play in the state of West Virginia? Well, I mean, fundamentally, I think it's a it's a platform that's about economic freedom. Um, and I think a lot of us can relate to the fact that, you know, we're not free if we have to like stay in a job because of healthcare, or if we have to, you know, work three jobs uh, to make ends meet, um, or if we're letting our kids uh, come out of school so burdened down with debt that they don't have the freedom to become teachers or social workers or stay in a rural community. So to me, a lot of this uh, platform about affordable healthcare and quality debt-free public education um, and uh, supporting uh, workers' rights um, and raising the minimum wage. These things are real bread and butter issues that would make a huge difference in many people's lives in West Virginia. It's really about giving uh, giving people real economic freedom. You know, we talk a lot about freedom, but in terms of like the choices that we're actually constrained by in our daily lives, um, a lot of us are not really free to have the sort of lives and careers that we want. And so that's how why I think that this could appeal to folks in West Virginia. Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com. 